Hello. And welcome to the Favecast. Today's episode is brought to you by Robot Jesus. Because Easter doesn't have to feel like 33 AD anymore. Bitch. Hello, and welcome to the Favecast. This episode was created by the tremendous efforts of 300 subterranean podcast miners who labored intensively to bring this audio miracle to life. Although it is difficult to thank each one of the 300 miners, there's no need to. All but five of them were crushed to death this morning. In spirit of those who live, we would like to thank the survivors by name. Taffy, Dr. Elmore, Big Bubba, Kidney Stone, and Boothead Smith III. Rest in power, young kings. Rest in power. Your efforts will not be forgotten on the Faithcast. Episode 2, The $100 Golden Egg. Hello there, and welcome to the Favecast. I'm your loyal host, the only host, the host of the least, Jeff LaFave. Thank you for tuning in today, uh, whatever day you listen to it. It is being recorded on the 31st day of the COVID-19 quarantine, also known as Easter Sunday 2020. I would like to thank everyone for their support right now. This has been a passion project of mine. Uh, really enjoyed the ability to produce some things. I went to school for a degree in not even media, journalism, uh, and it's been nice to stay uh, in some ways like I have some relevancy or skills that otherwise I paid a lot of money to waste. So uh, let's not waste too much more time here. I want to talk about the topic du jour. Um, probably not even going to release it same day, so jokes on all of us, Easter. Easter is a strange holiday. Uh, certainly feels like not the most interesting one. Reserve that for Christmas. Reserve that for Halloween. Uh, Easter has historically never been a favorite holiday of mine. Uh, I had a weird family situation growing up. I'd be remiss to suggest anything other than that for your typical American. Uh, but it was weird because I had family split into two main classes, and one of them was a very wealthy, affluent, uh, cosmopolitan family with uh, lots of lawyers and doctors and another half of it was really rural uh, salt-of-the-earth type folk more working-class um, really I'm gonna say poor uh, not in any sort of discrediting way but money was not present uh, in one house there would be all the wine and alcohol and fancy boozes cigars uh, you name it, going on to celebrate Easter, and the other family would be very fortunate to have sort of a easy uh, homemade cake with jelly beans on the icing, and the whole point of the day was just to watch toddlers play around in the yard, and there was two distinct dynamics. Sometimes I had both in the same day, and that was a very jarring uh, combination for me, almost uh, feeling overdressed at the family that was more rural, poor, and then perhaps underdressed, uh, with the family that were all like doctors and surgeons and had coats of arms in their homes and talked about relatives that had done something in politics or finance or something significant down the line. So in all, I got into Easter sometimes usually just feeling nervous, not sure what to expect. Uh, I, I found it interesting how a holiday about the return of a man who stood for total social equity and uh, empathy in truth in this world is celebrated in such different ways by people that share the same real estate in my life 
Uh, and I'm hoping to dissect that a little bit here on the Favecast today. Okay, so let's get right into it. The thing I feel that really represents my disdain for Easter is this concept that it really is drawn from capitalist hell. Uh, it's called the $100 golden Easter egg. When I was growing up, one of those families I mentioned before, and I'll let you take an educated guess as to which one, offered a top prize in the annual Easter egg hunt called the $100 golden egg. It was a plastic egg with uh, not a pastel covering, not plastic. It was this metallic sheen that looked like it actually had been painted gold. And true to form, every year inside was uh, $100. I think... Uh, somewhere in my mind, the decision was made to make it a check in case the $100 bill got lost, which I gotta say, fucking outstanding planning by the adults involved there. Uh, but I digress. The $100 egg, I, in my mind, I can't remember if it was bigger than the other eggs or smaller than the other eggs, or in no way different. But it was the most valuable egg, usually in the hardest hiding spot possible. Uh, and everyone was let go uh, that was playing the Easter egg hunt at least, which I'll, I'll get into it. it. It was weird that we had like some two-year-olds and 16-year-olds in the same egg hunt at times. Um, no one ever made a rule, which means everyone had to guess every year, and if you're mad at me, then that's on you, dude. Uh, I loved the Easter egg hunt, and I never got the golden egg. Never got the $100 golden egg. Never got $10 in an Easter egg. I don't think I ever got $5. $1 might have happened. I don't think I've ever had more than a few dimes in an Easter egg, which if you have to decide between dimes and jelly beans, fuck. So the whole point of the $100 golden egg was really to value some kid was going to get the $100, which as a kid in 1997, $100 is a lot of money. And I think that upset me not because I didn't get the egg, but because $20 for five kids is still a lot of money. Divide that 10 ways, $10. $10 could drastically upgrade any collection I had at age 7 or 8. But it had to be one kid getting a $100 bill, sometimes crisp, and they didn't have to share it at all. And, you know, you can't even spend it same day. What are you going to do? Go buy shots for all your friends? No, you're in pre-K, most likely. Um, and that was really where I, I smelled some bullshit over the years because uh, lovingly, and perhaps rightfully, it was always an adult that helped hide the eggs or saw where the Easter Bunny was, in big air quotes, that would take some small deserving kid, put them on their shoulders, and find where this golden egg was normally completely out of sight, like up in a third tree branch, tucked into the gutter somewhere, uh, in the glove box of Dad's Porsche, who knows. Uh, but someone always got the golden egg. It was never me. Sure, I'm pissed about it. Uh, what am I going to do with this in life? Uh, it was the first of many victories in which I knew people would make more money than me, uh, maybe even in my own family, especially in my own family, and that I would have nothing to show for it besides melted chocolates and purple jelly beans. So, good riddance to the $100 golden egg. On the other hand, my family that leaned more working class uh, put scratch-off tickets in eggs for kids to find. So... Let's let's dissect this entirely differently. Putting money in plastic eggs for kids to find. Uh, $100 bill or nothing. Okay. Now, what if we took that $100 bill and only made it $20? And it was 
$1 scratch-off tickets for most of them we're going to lose. Is that a better option for kids? Uh, kids can't even play until they turn, what is it, 18, 21? I think 18 for scratch-offs? Basically, if you want to have Easter with a little bit of fraud, perhaps some uh, illicit gambling going on, I don't know why that was such a Hoosier thing to do growing up, but my family had plenty of scratch-off tickets, and I would be lying if I said I didn't occasionally get people scratch-off tickets as a one-off gift or uh, sometimes to use as a to-from gift tag for a lot of presents. If you're going to buy one anyway, you might as well make one that could potentially earn someone 500 bucks or uh, a handy or whatever they give out in scratch-off tickets these days. I digress. The $100 egg never had the sense of translation over at the other house because it was like essentially a gamble that you would get the egg and a gamble that you would win if you got the egg and a gamble that it would be anything worthwhile. And it felt forever inferior alone to the $100 golden egg wherever it was stuck in the sewage pipe that year or somehow hanging around in grandma's mulligan stew. Always the weirdest places you'd never think to find. The other way I proved that I was an astonishingly dense dumbass at Easter uh, is that I used to think the Easter Bunny lived on the South Pole. Uh, and that got me into a lot of shit for various reasons. So, of course, uh, the standard fair holiday in the United States or the Western Christian world, whatever. Christmas, where does Santa live? Everyone knows the North Pole. Uh, of course, I heard some bullshit at school from some kid named Gregory that probably was obsessed with eyeballs uh, that the Easter Bunny lived on the South Pole. And like any curious young mind should, I went over to the globe in the classroom and I looked at the South Pole. There's a lot of land there. There's not a lot of land there anymore. But there was a lot of land there in our globes in 1998, and I matter-of-factly said, the Easter Bunny lives at Antarctica. Look at how much room it has to hop around. And then someone's like, oh, yeah, sure. Well, Santa lives on the North Pole, and I pointed to the globe where there was absolutely nothing. <laughs> and uh, the teacher immediately sensed that I was about to ruin Christmas for everyone at age 7 or 8. She's like, no, 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 no. Uh, it's like, uh, Santa... You know, he goes around throughout the year and asks people what they want. Yeah, they're like at the mall. And I'm like, the Easter Bunny's at the mall. How come the Easter Bunny has Antarctica all to himself? All right, Jeff, how about she takes some Adderall and go outside for a bit? But anyone that got mad about that towards me as a kid really doesn't have their head in the right place because we have a holiday about the Son of God. He's murdered, comes back, says everyone is saved, and we got to fucking paint eggs about it. I don't get it. I was never explained why the bunny, the eggs, everything, Tootsie Rolls, uh, dollar store chocolates that taste like butt. I really don't understand how we got where we got. Uh, and it might explain yet another miscue for me at a young age. You, you folks sense a theme here uh, about Easter baskets. And it kind of became a thing, at least in my family, where you started asking people what they wanted for Christmas. They'd make a list, you'd get it for them, and somehow that translated now to Easter, like, you know, <laughs> to celebrate, you know, that time Jesus was senselessly murdered. Uh, how about you kids getting some candy? What would you like? What sort of candy? And maybe it's just the fact we were little shits running wild in the 1990s in a wonderful capitalist era, uh, but I suggested Pokemon cards. Again, what a holographic Charizard has to do with the second coming of Christ, I don't 
No. But the choice was put on me as an eight-year-old, and I'm expected to know the difference and why. I don't know. Um, and I asked my parents matter-of-factly. I was looking forward to uh, if the Easter Bunny would bring me any Pokemon cards. And sure enough, Mom and Dad had to go make a Target run that night. And wouldn't you know it, the next day, uh, my brother and I had some Pokemon cards. Um, and not a lot of candy. Probably because Pokemon cards were expensive as hell. Uh, I, I was happy with them. I still have them. I don't think I've given away any of my Pokemon cards. I can't say the same for candy. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Uh, but I really think it was yet another opportunity as a kid for something that was meant to be a truly, you know, special Christian holiday got turned into uh, the process of checking out from the counter at Chuck E. Cheese where you're making concessions with yourself about how many tickets you have and what you really deserve as a young kid. And so this all brings me back to uh, a conversation I had with a relative at one point in my life. I think it's a very earnest question to have, and importantly, I think it's great to ask questions because if you're wrong, you learn something, and if you're right, you affirm what you know. There's never a problem with asking a question. And I asked, is it still fine for me to get an Easter basket uh, if I don't really believe in God in this family member who I respect in pretty much every matter and respect their right to disagree said something that in fact I really disagreed with and that was if you don't believe you don't receive and it's really a striking thing to say because as individuals it's our right to choose in faith it's our right to believe what we want to believe and ultimately I think improve your life to the best of your ability with that credo uh, to be withheld treats, candy, reward, affection, whatever you want to call it, uh, because your kids will not adhere to that ideology, the specific one you have chosen in your adult life. Uh, these uninformed beings, folks are still getting a lot of information that have probably yet to make a lot of independent choices. Uh, their pleasure of this holiday that seemingly everyone on the Western world participates in uh, will be withheld as punishment. And that was a really not great thing for me to hear at that age maybe just in terms of uh nice things to hear it was a very foundational thing for me to hear because i needed to start actually formulating what i was going to believe in and whether or not i would accept the consequences it may have been ironically a very founding moment in my life for shaping what i believe you can hear me dancing around it but here's the million dollar question on religion it's jeff do you believe in god um this is something I try to explain very delicately because if you ask me whether or not I believe in Bible God, storybook God, sends plagues and locusts as God, um, banishes people to hell God, I, I really don't. Can't say that I do. Um, I really view the Bible as Aesop's fables for the ages. It is packed with incredible parables, uh, nice lessons on treatment of others, uh, and above all, I believe Jesus is probably a person I would emulate as a role model uh, if he existed and there was nothing religious about him. Uh, you know, feed the hungry, give money to the poor, uh, practice modesty at all times. I think that's really admirable. But if you tried to get me to say that this person who's his dad specifically shaped the earth and all these other highly specific things, I just can't get along with that in the literal sense. I think about some concepts, too, also given to me. For example, uh, I was created in his image, allegedly. 
And I think that if I naturally am a skeptical person, a curious person, a person who needs to see with empirical evidence, then a God who I was molded after would only see that as a tremendous asset. We gave him the brains, he might say. He knows how to use them. Let us see this as a good thing. And if I don't choose the passive-aggressive right answer, then I really don't think or at least hope this person would punish me for it. That might be the thing that ultimately divides my religious views on such a fine line. I don't believe in such a hard line on judgment. Morality uh, would come from someone that is as widely empathetic or uh, loving, as I am told. Uh, I, I believe a lot in the principle of forgiveness, and I really think that a true God, a universal God, whatever divine being, would also go to those same lengths of forgiveness and acknowledge a complex mindset one might have if they are a very intellectual or observant person and have valid uh, concerns that they can't have adequately addressed by lore, per se. Um, I do believe in the cardinal golden rule, do unto others as you'd have do unto yourself. It's a wonderful way to live your life if you can't have anything else to guide it. And hey, if chocolate eggs and jelly beans and a hopping Easter bunny help drive that point home for you, I think that's terrific. I can't say it does for me. That's more or less what uh, my Kurt Vonnegut books and my uh, Electric Light Orchestra records are meant to do. But I think if that's your end goal, however you get there with whatever path, that's all I want in this world. Besides commercials. Generations of scientific miracles have led us to this absolutely monumental point. Finally, a chair built for adults. Have a seat, take a load off your feet, and a chair that's totally not meant for kids. You'll be lost in relaxation tantamount to the highest peaks of Shangri-La, a sitting experience that your little harebrained fuck weasel would have absolutely no comprehension of if it smacked them in their little pea-brained shitheads. The adult chair, not for kids. Down here at Whistle Stop Pizza, we believe in providing families with an entertaining, accurate depiction of the good old Wild West times. In addition to our award-winning pizza, you can expect a real hootenanny. Every night at 6 p.m., we cut off a felon's hands to discourage petty theft. After that, we tried treason her to a wild horse and set him off to starve in the desert. Boy, howdy! Whistle Stop Pizza. Don't fake the real thing. Jesus Christ, who pays for this shit? <sighs> okay, let's kick it over to the mailbag. Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me wanna wag my tail. When it comes, I wanna wail. Welcome back to the Favecast. It is time for our mailbag. Thank you very much for submitting questions this week. Friendly reminder, you can always submit questions to the Favecast on Twitter. Uh, just shoot me a message at btownmoose, or you can email me at karatebone at gmail.com. Before we get much further, I want to address this podcast and dedicate it to the folks currently working for the United States Postal Service. Uh, this is a jokey mailbag, but the work they do every day is very important, and we can't appreciate that enough, I think. So, this cold one's for you. Question 1. 
from Jim B. What is your favorite Easter memory? Well, that's a great question. I've already got ahead and expressed everything I don't like about Easter, so finding a favorite part might seem a little difficult to do. Uh, if I had to pick a real serious answer here about my favorite thing from Easter, uh, when I was a kid and a young boy, it gave me the opportunity to interact with a lot of other older male role models, which, you know, you don't really think is very important when you're that young, but now that I'm 29, I'm glad I had a lot of uh, foundational experiences around older men in my family that were kind of treated treated as patriarchs or some uh, elders of sorts. I remember being in my father's basement where he had two or three separate TVs at once running sports. Uh, he would usually be drinking a beer, having a cigarette, and uh, although that's what he did most days after he got off work was go to his bar and have a beer and a cigarette and watch TV, uh, dad's demeanor changed when there were men at the bar who were older than him. And I immediately watched him go from sort of a, you know, king of his own domain to a public servant bartender for these gentlemen. Uh, and I really enjoyed talking with some of these folks as they smoked big cigars, big, nasty, chiefy, cloudy cigars that filled up the whole basement with smoke. And I was elated to hear these men tell war stories. I mean, literal war stories. Some of them were from World War II. Some of them were mechanics at the Indy 500. Some of them you never would have thought they were these crazy people in their youth but are now refined individuals. And so I was looking forward to that every few years uh, on Easter until a lot of my family sort of changed. Uh, but I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk to folks who had been around the earth far more than I have that I otherwise didn't get to see and just be around them when they brought a different perspective in and uh, I guess drank a lot of alcohol and smoked tobacco in front of me. There was also the time I went Easter egg hunting in only my underwear. Uh, that was a nightmare. A real nightmare I wish I could erase from my mind. Alas, God gave me the memory uh, in which I can torture myself forever and ever. But one Easter morning, we were so excited to run out and start collecting eggs, I ran out in my underwear uh, and just started going. It was 45 degrees. I was probably 13 years old. This is the last I will speak of this incident ever again. Question 2 from Erico. What are the best and worst Easter candies? I love this question. I'm glad we got this question because it's something I think everyone will have a good opinion on. Uh, I want to start from the top down. Let's start with what are the absolute best S-tier Undertaker at WrestleMania candies. Uh, for Easter, I think this is a no-brainer to go with 1A, the Cadbury Cream Egg. 1B are the Starburst Jelly Beans. And 1C is any piece of chocolate shaped like a bunny. Does not matter if it's good chocolate, does not matter if it's bad chocolate. If it's shaped like a bunny, great Easter candy. B tier, these are some good, fine candies, but maybe they're just not quite there. Uh, I'm going to, unfortunately, go with the Reese's Peanut Butter Egg. Consistency issues, sometimes it looks like a big turd. Uh, it, it's great, it's really great, but it's A tier, not S tier. With that has, uh, I'm going to say, any standard juggernaut Mars M&M product, maybe a Hershey bar. Uh, I'm, willy, I'm even willing to leave the door open for jelly je belly jelly beans here. And uh, that's it. Starbursts are better than Jelly Belly. I'll say it. B tier is where we start running into some serious issues with the candy in question. We're talking about your Gamble chocolate from the dollar store, uh, anything that has the Palmer logo on it, run, any sort of chocolate that is currency related, 
uh, great idea normally tastes like crap. I'm sorry. I really don't want to come across as this crass, but the vast majority of Easter candy is not great. And then we got the C tier, which is things that don't even really have a name. And by that, I'm saying like butterscotch discs and uh, those like hard candies that come shaped like a little strawberry or a pineapple. I don't know who makes those. C tier. Sorry. At that point, just give me some dimes, I guess. F tier would have to be something like vegetables or kryptonite. I don't know. Question three from Brendan M. Where should marijuana be legalized? Well, Brendan, I think a quick question deserves a quick answer, so I'm going to say here and now. Uh, but more seriously on this issue, uh, you can tell I'm probably, probably tell I'm an advocate for it. I think it is uh, a way for a lot of people to let loose. But when it comes to these sort of widespread issues, I really feel it's best left to an open ballot than, say, uh, a decision made by a hundred men and women in suits that don't represent millions of people necessarily, as well as they think they do. Uh, I think this is something that, as grown adults, people should have the right to vote upon, and majority rule should typically win. Pretty much for every question I'm going to get about legalization, my answer is always going to align with, if you're treated like an adult, the choice should be yours. I'm not saying complete and total legalization of marijuana. The way I tend to think about it is much like we do tobacco. Legal to purchase? Yes. Taxed? Yes. Age requirement? Also yes. I would feel the same about marijuana as I do for alcohol. I would feel fine with needing to go to a certain place to purchase it, needing to be 18 or 21 to purchase it, and really having the comfort that I can get it without any sort of issue. The United States, for all of its ups and downs throughout history, has uh, one common theme. I think we can agree it's uh, military action. And, of course, military action creates a lot of opportunities for death and suffering, uh, often to people that weren't even asked if they'd like to be trotted off to war. Where I'm going with this is, if at age 18 you can be properly picked upon by a larger force to go get a gun and potentially die against your will, I think at that moment you should have all the rights and privileges of an adult. Uh, basically, let me live my own life, please, as long as it doesn't hurt others. You know, you want to talk about getting high in the privacy of your basement, watching, you know, Cool Hand Luke for the 14th time that weekend, you're not hurting anybody, maybe your mom, but that's it. Talking about getting high and driving, that's a different ballpark. That should still be prosecuted and handled as a, a crime. I'm not going to let everyone off the hook just because suddenly I want marijuana legalized. In all, we as humans are not here incredibly long. I would really hate for anything we humans do for pleasure that might be a little subject to scrutiny of censorship, like an R-rated movie or Daytona Bike Week or doing shots where... Hey, at the end of the day, it's how you want to spend your life. It's your business. Marijuana is absolutely not for everyone, but legalization doesn't mean everyone has to do it. I would really consider it, as silly as this sounds, like a public option vote on jorts. You would not find me dead wearing a pair of jorts, but I still respect other people's rights to wear them, and the privacy is their, of their own home is embarrassing and gaudy as I might think it is. 
So all in all, I'm kind of live and let die on this. I've seen the benefits it has done for individuals in terms of improving mental health, increasing appetite, working on anxiety. I've seen the great it can do for states and regions at large with public interest tax to finance schools, infrastructure, and other opportunities. Uh, really, I think the time is long overdue. If folks in a more conservative, traditional state, like maybe Montana or West Virginia, decide they still don't want any part of it, that's fine. But I'd feel better about the general public being asked their opinion on it versus a handful of millionaires who might have special interests wrapped up in, say, the tobacco lobby or prospective investors in a blooming marijuana private industry. Leave it up to the people. We've only gotten it wrong about 40% of the time. But it's better than most. Question 4 from B. How do you make a podcast? Well, you see, B, when an unfunny white dude and the internet love each other very much. Uh, but for real, I, I've started this podcast within the last week or so. It's a pretty easy thing to do. In short, here's what I recommend you do if you want to get started on a podcast. One, download Audacity. It's free. It's pretty simple to learn. Any question I've had, I was able to mince out some words on Google and find out everything I needed to know within seconds. You stack everything you want sound layers, audio clips, stingers, songs, whatever, and you can pretty much lay it out like a sandwich and flatten it into one track, and when you're done, you're ready to go. I use Podbean to host my podcasts. It's pretty simple. I just Googled free podcast hosting. I really like what they do. It's been very intuitive and responsive, and I haven't had any issues with my one song I kind of ripped off as copyright for both of these episodes. So, uh, what, probably the best way to finish the podcast is think of a loose idea, don't commit to anything right off the bat and hamstring yourself in terms of creativity. Let it come along naturally, start wide, and then narrow your focus. For example, you can make inane commercials advertising an adult chair or a Wild West pizza place that does nightly hangings. The world is your oyster. Question 5 from Trevor A. Got a quick cooking tip? Oh, yeah, I, I do have a quick cooking tip there, Trevor. Thank you very much for asking. This is something we can all use. Uh, I'd like to thank my friend Chris Barr for turning me on to this life. Uh, basically, anytime you're going to bake a pizza and you're going to use a pan, you don't always have to use a pan, but if you're going to, the best way to take a $2 pizza and make it taste like a minimum $5.50 pizza is to take garlic salt. Spread that on the bottom of the pan, just a little bit, enough to lightly coat it. Set the pizza on top when it bakes, and it turns every pizza into a garlic crust pizza for just fractions of a penny. I've never really overdone it either. It's garlic salt. I'm going to eat it either way. I absolutely love it. Question 6 from Ryan D. What is the cultural impact of the hit 1999 song Smooth by Carlos Santana featuring Rob Thomas of Matchbox 20? Now I'll admit that's quite the lofty question to receive in pretty much any podcast, but for a sense of context, uh, I love this song. I've been shitposting about it on Facebook and Twitter for close to four years now. I've loved the song for about 20, 21 years now, but Smooth by Carlos Santana featuring Rob Thomas of Matchbox 20 uh, off the album Supernatural. It really just a phenomenal release, and the thing you need to give it credit for in its moment more than anything is that you have Carlos Santana... Uh, an elderly Latino man who played at Woodstock with Rob Thomas, a very young, sensitive white guy who <laughs> is the slow dance king at middle schools in 1998. 
it, it doesn't seem like they would even be caught dead in the same shoe store. But somehow, some way, they found an awesome combination. Carlos doesn't sing. He does what he does best. He just goes to town on the guitar. And Rob does what he does best, which is croon, make up a little sensitive banner. My Mona Gita, my parents are the Mona Lisa. Yeah, and they put it together, and it's about three and a half to four minutes of total heaven. That alone in the year 2000 was great. You think about it, it came out like in the last few months before 9-11. What a perfect world we had then with Smooth atop the charts. I feel it's worth going back, though, because there have been other duets that this makes me think of. Uh, off the bat, I think of Paul McCartney appearing on Michael Jackson's Thriller to record The Girl Is Mine, for instance. These sorts of crossovers are a little different. I, I also think of uh, David Bowie and Mick Jagger covering Dancing in the Street by Martha and the Vandellas. wasn't even an exceptional cover, but seeing people from two different genres of music coming together to make a third different genre of music or cover a different genre of music is something I really appreciate. I, you know, another example of this was when Elton John and George Michael of Wham! fame covered Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me together. You got Elton John, who was putting out albums in the late 60s, and George Michael, of course, who one of the more famous musicians of the 80s and 90s, both queer icons, obviously, but entirely different reaches, coming together for an unforgettable song, just a few minutes, ultimately, in the span of our lives, but what it builds for a human connection and the spirit of a good time uh, is, is invaluable. I think that's what Smooth did in 2000. I'm trying to think of other songs which might have this approach. We might say, for example, Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus with Old Town Road 2019. You know, taking these musicians that are so far apart and bringing them together on such a small road rarely goes wrong. Uh, and so that's where I feel Supernatural, or Smooth off the album Supernatural, really exceeded in that it was... it's decade, its generation, its slice of the 20th century eon uh, that really stood up in the name of iconic duo music. And it's a banger. Absolute banger. Well, folks, that just about fucking does it for me. Uh, that's why I'm going to start signing off the Favecast here. Well, folks, that's it. I'm tired of this shit. Uh-uh, I'm out of here. Uh, it's been a real pleasure spending this day, morning, afternoon, evening, night, quarantine, whatever we did. Did we learn anything valuable? Are we daredevils of radio or fools of podcast? I can't tell. Special thanks this episode goes out to Carter Seaton, someone who helped me grow my radio chops in the summer of 2010. Special shout out to our sponsors today. That would be the Adult Chair Company and Whistle Stop Pizza. As always, you can reach the Favecast by tweeting me at btownmoose or emailing me at karatebone at gmail.com. This has been the Favecast. Thank you for listening.